This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, as we wind up the weekend, in fact, the month, let's spend some time with a man who's often referred to as the boy genius Orson Welles. What a marvelous set of pipes he had, and how he could use them. So, it's The Lives of Harry Lyne, and the episode first aired in 1952. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the story The Third Man with zither music by Anton Karras. Have you ever tried looking for a needle in a haystack? Well, I did a bit of needle searching in London myself not so long ago, only this was no ordinary needle. As it all concerned a picture a man had painted in Holland 300 years ago, I'll call this little adventure the elusive Vermeer. Wells as Harry Lyme, the third man, in today's story, The Elusive Vermeer. I first met Horace Sinjin Windermere. Oh, yes, that really was his name, at Cannes. Horace had class. He was probably the classiest breaking and entering merchant that had ever burgled an English country mansion. And he had taste. Too. Horace's jars were all big ones, and he planned them months in advance, down to the last detail. That's how I came to get involved. We were having a drink at his villa one evening, just the two of us. Hey, my dear fellow, I've been wondering if I could interest you in a small business proposition. Well, so long as it involves a maximum of profit with a minimum of risk, the answer is yes. Well, it'll be profitable enough, I assure you. As for the risk, well, that's up to yourself. I'm all ears. With a certain reluctance, I confess, I shall be returning to England next week. As soon as the right opportunity presents itself, I propose to visit a place called Bardsley Hall, Wilts. Wilts? Oh, Wiltshire, my dear fellow, the county. 
Bartley Hall is one of the show places there in the country seat of Lord Rixton. This visit will be during his lordship's absence, of course. Oh, naturally. Mm. It would be the most embarrassing if we were to meet. Yes, he has several so. white and Adam pieces that I find quite irresistible. Not to mention a modest collection of Chelsea and Beau porcelain, some fine examples of Waterford glass, and, uh, well, this is where you come in, Harry. No? An extraordinarily fine painting by the 17th century Dutch master, Vermeer van Delft. Uh, no doubt you're on familiar terms with Vermeer's Lady of the Virginals in our National Gallery. Oh, I've been on familiar terms with many ladies, but I can't say I remember her in particular. <laughs> However, carry on, old man. Don't let me stop the fine flow of your eloquence. Well, I need hardly tell you that the disposal of the objet that come into my position presents almost as many problems as the requisition and needs to be as carefully planned. Yes, I guess that's so well. Unfortunately, the Heppelwhite and Adam, the Chelsea and Bow, and the Waterford present no great difference. And my clientele includes a number of gentlemen who are always eager to add to their collections at a reasonable price. Yeah. However, the Vermeer is, as one might say, a rather different kettle of fish. Oh, how's that? Well, for one thing, it's rather too easily recognizable for an English collector to dare hang without risking the danger of having to answer awkward questions. Oh. And for another, the present-day price of a Vermeer is, I'm afraid, rather beyond the purse of most of my impoverished fellow countrymen. Oh, I see. It occurs to me, Harry, that with a little preliminary organization, you might possibly be able to find a market for it in America. Well, I do have a few connections back home. Precisely. So, if you're interested... Uh, tell me, old man, what would be a fair price uh, for a Vermeer? In your currency, oh, $100,000? Mm, uh, oh, well, that's real money. And my cut of this 100000 would be... Uh, what, old man? Well, the normal agents fee in transactions involving rare works of art varies from 20 to 33 percent. In that case, I'll settle for 50. I had proposed to suggest 40. I shouldn't if I were you, old man. That is, of course, if you really want me in on this deal. Very well, 50 it is. You'll start things moving from your end at once, sure. Oh, sure, and you? Oh, I shall, as I say, forego the pleasures of this idyllic spot and return to London next week. I shall make the requisite inquiries regarding his lordship's movements, and when the appropriate moment arrives, you will receive a wire from me saying simply... Roger. Roger. And then? Well, as soon as possible, you will go to Nice and catch the first available plane for London. By the time you arrive, the Vermeer will be in my possession. You will collect it at this address. Uh, I'll write it down for you, shall I? Yeah. Tell me. There you are. One, two, A, Allgate Grove, EC3. That'd oh. be somewhere in the East End, wouldn't it? Exactly. Not the most salubrious neighborhood, I must admit, but one that I find extremely convenient at times. <laughs> Selling old masters is not exactly, as the English would say, my cup of tea. But they don't call me Harry Resourceful Lonnie for nothing. As it turned out, I didn't even have to contact my American connections at all. A couple of days after Horace left for England, I got talking to a guy named Joseph J. Hopman, who turned out to be an oil millionaire from Omaha and who was traveling to give himself a bit of culture. All I had to do was mention the name Vermeer, and nature did the rest. Do I understand you to say, Mrs. Lamb, that you've got a real, genuine, dyed-in-the-wool Vermeer for sale? Yeah, well, I haven't quite got it yet, but... Uh, uh, but you can get it? I think so, yeah. Right, name your price. Well, they don't come cheap, you know, a hundred and... Uh, and what? Well, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Sold? When can I take delivery? Well, not so fast, Mr. Huffman. You're not buying a pair of socks in the five and ten cent store, you know. Well, I don't quite get you. Well, we've agreed on a price, certainly, but this may take a lot of delicate negotiation. You realize, of course, there are certain uh, unusual features about it. Uh, how do you mean? Well, for instance, the picture's likely to be, shall we say, a trifle warm. I don't care if it's white hot. 
My partner, Junior Say Choppenheimer Jr., got himself a Rembrandt last time he was over here, and my wife's millions has been green with envy ever since. So you get me that veneer, Mr. Lyman, and I'll pay the price you name and ask no questions. Right. So long as you know exactly where we stand. I'm expecting word from my colleague in England any day now, and as soon as the OK comes through, I'll be flying to London. I suggest you follow immediately, and when I have the picture, I'll deliver it to you. We'll close the deal. Fair enough? Sure. That's okay by me. A few evenings later, Horace's wire came through. Roger. I passed the word on to Joseph J., and the following night I was in London. I decided I wouldn't mention the extra $50,000 to Horace. After all, what you don't know you're entitled to, you never miss. I booked in at the Ritz Aston. After dinner, I made my way out to the East End. Allgate Grove is a sinister little side street in the heart of a slum, and 12A wasn't exactly what you'd call a palace. However, I knocked, and after a while, the door opened a few inches, and a little cockney guy stuck his nose out. Yeah? What do you want, Chum? Well, I'm looking for Mr. Windermere. Well, thank you. Well, he told me to come to this address. Oh, he did, did he? What's your name? Harry Lyme. Oh, well, why didn't you say so at first? Come right in, Mr. Lyme. Thanks. You must be Jerry, aren't in you? In person. Well, we're getting to the parlor, shall we? All right. Nothing fancy, but we can have a bit of natural air and private as you might Lead say. the way, old man. Lead the way. Take us this door. All right. Make yourself at home, Mr. Lamb. Sit down and rest the old plates of meat. Thanks. Uh, when will I be able to see Mr. Wenderman? Hmm? You mean to say you ain't heard about him yet? Why, no. Is something the matter? Something's the matter, all right. He's gone and rather well snuffed it. Snuffed it? Turn up his toes. Kick the bass and bucket. You mean he's dead? Well, ain't that what I'm trying to tell you? How does it happen? Oh, it was the old butcher's block. What? Always been a bit dicky, you know. Just suddenly gave out. Butcher's block? Clock, dicker. Oh, oh, you mean he had a heart attack? I couldn't put him much blame, could I? Well, what did this happen? Only yesterday I had a telegram from him. Well, that's when it happened yesterday, oh. last night, to be exact. It was all sort of a sudden, as you might say. See, Mr. Windermere and me had gone out for a bit of a run in the country. To Bartley Hall, yeah, Wilson. Yeah, mm. Well, we picked up a few odds and ends there, see? A bit of old furniture and the junk picture, and, 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 and so on, and pretty junky stuff. Uh, was there a picture me. among the things that you yeah, picked yeah, up? Yeah, a big one in a gold frame. Oh. Old as the hills, it looked. Some oh. bloke in fancy dress sitting in a room with, with a big map on the wall and one of them round globe things. Well, uh, you know, some uh, picture map pick up and a globe. Yes. Wrote a few bob. That's yes, right. Uh, I don't think why they bothered with it. Honest, I can't. Anyway, we was coming home, see? Uh, with the stuff yeah, in with the... with the stuff in the back of the van. And off we go with Mr. Windermere cracking jokes and chatting away 90 to a dozen and, and me only listening with half an ear, as you might say. And all of a sudden, I realised he ain't talking no more. Well, I'll take a quick butcher's in. Uh, butcher's? What's butcher's? It? Okay, look. Don't you understand English? Well, I'll take a look and... There he is, all huddled up in the Johnny Horner, in the corner. Oh, yes, I see. Well, I'll stop the van to see what's wrong. He's as dead as a ruddy door, lad. Poor old Horace. Yeah. Now, uh... He was took away first thing this morning by the undertaker. Mm -hmm. He's to be buried tomorrow. Oh, it's going to be a real slap-up funeral, I can tell you. Uh, Nothing but the best for the governor, that's what uh, I was yes, saying. Yes, must do you credit, Joe. Uh, by the way, what happened to the picture? Picture? Uh, yes. Oh, you mean a picture? Yes, the picture. Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I was a bit worried about that. So was I, as a matter of fact. All them rosers snooping around and so on, it might have been a bit dangerous, so, so I thought I'd be better get rid of it too sweet. You don't mean to... Jerry, you didn't destroy it. Well, I was going to, and, and then I thought I could probably flog it for half a quid. Well, half a quid's half a quid these odd times with super tax and all, so, so I took it to a black named Angus McFarlane, what has a junk shop down the street. Hey, Bob, that's all he'd give me. You sold it? Yeah, hey, flippin' money, Bob. Well, where does this Mr. McFarlane have his shot? Oh, Turn Park Road, just up the R Street. Was well, he likely to be on the premises now? No, or... it's just a lock-up shop. I don't know where he lives. Why, what's the trouble? Well, I, I, I just thought I might buy it back if uh, he still has it. Well, I could think of a lot, lot of better things myself, but 
Well, if it's the picture you want, I'll phone you to Angus McFarlane's. Okay, Jim. But Jerry, it seems, had underestimated the business acumen of Mr. McFarlane. I was at his shop bright and early next morning, but when I mentioned the picture, he shook his head. Aye, sir, I mean the picture you mean, Audie. It's no longer here, the loop. Well, who, who did you sell it to? A dealer from somewhere in Fulham. He was seeking for old friends, he said. And he bought all I had in the shop. Well, what was his name? Oh, I didn't ken that. He paid me cash, though. I didn't ask. You know whereabouts in Fulham he has his shop? I didn't ken that, neither. Well, can you tell me anything about him at all that might help me to find him? Oh, I mean, he had an accent. Aye, he had an accent, all right. But as to whether it was a Welsh or what it was, I knew like to commit myself. I'm a fear I forgotten. Uh, would this five-pound note help you to remember, Mr. Pifaro? It'd be a great help. All right, let's start remembering. Well, as I recall the man, he was tall and thin and clean-shaved. Well, go on. What about his accent? Accent? Is there something about an accent? Okay. Here's another five. Now, give, Mr. McFarland, give. Ah, well, of course. I recall the news. He's Irish. Is that straight? Would you doubt the word of a McFarland, sir? I'm telling you he was Irish as Paddy's pigs. It was too late to do anything more that evening, so I went back to my hotel and spent the rest of the night cursing the perfidy of Mr. Angus McFarlane. Next morning, a waiter brought up my breakfast, and as I was coping with toast and English marmalade, I switched on the bedside radio. It was right in the middle of the morning news session. One quarter ounce per person per week. The police last night recovered from premises in Reading a quantity of antique furniture, porcelain and glass, which had disappeared two nights previously from Bardsley Hall, Wiltshire, during the absence of the owner, Lord Rexton. A man has been detained. It is understood that a valuable painting by the Dutch master, Jan Vermeer van Delft, is still missing, and the police... Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't need anyone to tell me what that meant. I had to find that picture and find it fast. Or else I might as well say a fond goodbye to Joseph J. Hoffman and his beautiful hundred and fifty thousand bucks. In a moment, Orson Welles returns as Harry Lyme, the third man. Orson Welles, as Harry Lyme, the third man, continues today's story, The Elusive Vermeer. For half a day, I combed the main streets and back alleys of Fulham, 
By noon, I figured there couldn't possibly be another junk shop within two miles that I hadn't already been into. Then suddenly, in a dirty little side street, I found myself outside a dirty little shop, compared with which Mr. McFarland's dump looked like something out of Bond Street. What excited me was half a dozen soot-covered old pictures in the window. I pushed open the door and entered. At the top of the morning to you, sir. He was tall and thin and clean-shaven, and there was no mistaking that accent. Uh, do you happen to be the gentleman who bought a number of old pictures from a dealer in Allgate a uh, day or so ago? Uh, sure, that's me. From old Angus McFarlane, you mean? That's right. You know Mr. McFarlane? Yes, we've known each other these last 15 years. Wasn't it Patrick Bright himself, that's me, sir, that had the next star to him in the old Caledonian market? Skip it, thank heaven I found you, Mr. Byrne. I'm trying to trace one of those pictures. It was sold to McFarlane by mistake. You mean to say it's a valuable picture? Oh, not intrinsically so, but it belonged to my grandmother, and so for me, at any rate, it has a strong sentimental value, if you know what I mean. Oh, I understand perfectly, sir. So if you still have it, I'll be glad to buy it back at a fair profit to yourself, of course. You know, I've already sold one or two, but it's hope it's still here. Uh, come this way, sir. This is the lot I was after buying from McFarland, the robber. Here they are. There were 15 or 20 pictures, most of them corneal reproductions like The Monarch of the Glen, Psyche at the Well, and The Carter's Saturday Night. What originals there were looked to me even cornier still. I went through the lot three times. There was nothing remotely like a Vermeer. To sure you are eight years, sir. Oh, that's quite sure. We searched the joint from floor to ceiling. He was right, of course. Said they wasn't there. You, you say you've sold one or two pictures. Yeah, that's right, sir. Who to? Do you know the names of the buyers? Well, he was a gent come in and bought one of them, sir. An arty sort of a gent with sandals and a big black beard. He was looking for a frame for one of his old masterpieces, he said. And then there was, uh, was Mrs. Huggett. Mrs. Huggett? Yeah, that's right, sir. She lives over the river at Putney. She's after buying a couple of pictures as presents for a married daughter, sir. Could this one I'm after possibly have been one of them? Sure, I don't know why not, sir. There was what I recall of some Highland cattle. Ugly face they were, too, but a fine picture. Uh, would that be it, sir? No, no, no. And the other, let me think now, sure, of course, I remember the other one was in an old-fashioned dress, standing in a room. With a map on the wall? Is that right? There, there was a map. And a globe? You know, a globe of the world? Uh, sure, there was a globe, too, on it, sir, I remember it well. Is that the picture after one? I believe so. Yes, I believe so. Uh, but whereabouts in Putney does this Mrs. Huggett live? Well, sir, that's something I'm afraid I can't tell you. You don't know? No, sir, except she's somewhere up by the top of the hill, I believe. Okay, that's something to go on anyway. Uh, thank you, Mr. Byrne. Uh, this is for your trouble. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> no trouble at all, sir. Thank you, indeed. <laughs> Mrs. Huggett, Putney Hill. The scent was getting warmer. I hurried back to the main street looking for a cab to take me to Putney Bridge. And then, as I rounded a corner, I bumped into a man. A big, solid, very English-looking man. Why, hello, Mr. Lyme. Fancy bumping into you in Fulham, of all places. Oh, uh, hello. You don't remember me? I can't recall your face, Orkan, but your feet are familiar. I see what you mean. Yours would be flat, too, if you pounded a beat for ten years. Oh, of course. I remember now. I have, Inspector Dane. That's right. Uh, nice to have met you again, Inspector James. So long. What's the hurry, Mr. Lyme? I have a little business to attend to, Inspector James. I'm just... Uh, Thought we meet so rarely. 
In fact, I didn't even know you were back in England till yesterday. Uh, yesterday? Yes. I happened to notice you once or twice. You appeared to be doing a round of the junk shop. Oh, oh, <laughs> yes. Well, you see, as a matter of fact... That, Don't uh, tell me you're on the trail of the missing Vermeer, Mr. Lyme. The missing Vermeer? Haven't you heard about it? It was stolen from Lord Rexton. Oh, no, I can't say I have. As a matter of fact, I've been trying to match an old Georgian decanter to make a pair for a friend of mine back home in the States. Any luck? No, not so far. I'm afraid things like that aren't as easy to come by these days. The antique market isn't what it was. It's all these rich Americans, you know. Mm, yeah. Sorry, no personal reflection. Yeah, so I no, you couldn't have met me when you said rich. Anyway, Mr. Lyme, if you intend continuing with your search, you might at the same time keep an eye open for this Vermeer. Our information is that it's found its way into a junk shop somewhere in this area. Oh, well, I'll certainly look for it, of course, but I'm no authority on painting. I wouldn't know of Vermeer if it crept up and bit me. And You're far too modest, I'm sure. If, as I say, you do happen to find it by any remote chance, I'd be grateful if you'd get in touch with me at the yard. Oh, sure, sure. We can depend on that, Inspector. Thank you, Mr. Lyme. Good day. Goodbye. Thank you, James. Uh, hey, taxi! Taxi! <laughs> hot on the scent now. If I'd been a bloodhound, I'd have barked or bayed or whatever it is they do. Anyway, I found 216 Cortester Street with no very great trouble, and from the way Marlene had greeted me and showed me in, I guessed Mama had already been on the phone to some purpose. Well, the first thing I spotted when I walked into the parlor was the room. Yes, there it was in all its glory, hanging over the mantelpiece. It was all I could do to stop from shouting for joy. But if I imagined Marlena was going to be an easy nut to crack... I had another guest coming. It was obvious those telephone wires had been running red hot. Why did you your mother hasn't wasted your time sending you here, you know? I don't really know if I want to sell. Yeah, but surely, Mrs. Um, Smithers... Well, I'm... after all, there's William to consider. Uh, William? My husband. Well, I wouldn't like to do anything without consulting him. Well, I mean to say the picture's as much his as mine. Um, 50 pounds, hmm? Oh, I couldn't possibly dream of letting a go for that. William would be furious on that. Twenty. Okay, 25. Come on, Mrs. Smith. 25 pounds. That's a, a lot of money for a picture like that. Look at it yourself. It's as old as the hills. Look the way the paint's cracking and how the colors fade. It, it, it probably won't be fit for anything but the scrap heap in another couple of years. Mrs. You Smith. seem keen enough to get old, of you? Well, I uh, explained that to your mother. It has a sentimental value for me, Mrs. Smith. Well, so it has for me. How come? Well, you forget what's given to me. After all, a present's a present. It's not the sort of thing one should sell. Well, besides, it looks real nice up there over the mantel. Yeah. I should hate to see it go. Thirty pounds. Fifty. Fifty pounds for that old daub? Ridiculous. Well, take it to leave it. You drive a hard bargain, Miss Smithers, but okay. Give you fifty. Oh, thanks very much. I'm sure. <laughs> I could hardly believe my good fortune. With a veneer tucked under my arm, I hurried back to the Ritz Astor. All I had to do now was contact Joseph J., get rid of the picture, and collect my dollars, 150,000 of them, and every cent for Harry Lyme. I phoned Hoffman's Hotel, and to my delight and relief, I heard his voice at the other end. 
Joseph J. Hoffman speaking. Who is this? It's me, J.J., Harry Lyme. Well, say, how are you? It's swell to hear your voice. Oh, you don't know how swell it is to hear yours. How's that little uh, business we discussed coming along? Well, that's why I'm calling you, to tell you I've, I've got the goods. No kidding. No kidding, right here. Fine. Bring it around to my hotel. Now? Sure, right now. Do uh, you have the money, J.J.? Yes, sir, 150 grand. Boy, I can hardly wait to get my peepers on that picture. It won't be long, will you? Expect me in five minutes. $150,000, enough to keep me in the luxury to which I've become accustomed for, well, for a month or two anyway. Seemed too easy. Harry Lyme returns in just a moment. under my arm and the porter signaled a cab for me from the corner of my eye I caught sight of a familiar pair of feet coming towards me Inspector James of Scotland Yard I shot a quick glance the other side two more sets of feet just as big and just as flat also coming my way didn't have a chance in a million I knew it I did some split second thinking Taxi, sir? Uh, yes, please. What's you, sir? Uh, Scotland Yard. What? Did you say Scotland Yard, Mr. That's Hyde? right. Oh, why, hello, Inspector. Where did you spring from? And talk about coincidences. I was just on my way to see you, Inspector James. Really? Why? You'd never believe it, but you know that picture you were talking about today, that uh, veneer? Vermeer, Mr. Lyde. Uh, oh. Vermeer is a thin cover. Oh, yes, uh, Vermeer. Well, hold on to your hat, old man, but I... I think I found it. You do? Yes, I've got it right here. And you were on your way to deliver it to me? Yes, that's correct, Inspector James. Splendid. A most public-spirited action, oh, Mr. Lyon. Thank you. I'll take it down, save you the trouble if you like. Certainly, here you are. Thanks. I suppose it must be quite a relief to get rid of it. Oh, sure, yes. You know, of course, there'll be a reward for this from the insurance underwriters. Mm. Oh, a reward? Oh, I didn't know that. Quite generous one, in fact. Five hundred pounds. Five hundred. Uh, how does that work out in dollars, Inspector James? About fourteen hundred, I believe. But not as much as, say, a hundred and fifty thousand, of course. Still, quite a lot of money, eh? Uh, yes, quite a lot of money. And tax-free, too. Tax-free. No wonder you're known at the yard as Lucky Harry Lyme. Uh, no wonder. <laughs> Thank you. 
Stay tuned for The Lone Ranger next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. If The Lone Ranger is here, then his trusted friend Tonto can't be far behind. We'll find them both in this episode, first aired in 1948. Speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. Indian companion Tonto, the masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. The stories of his strength and courage, his daring and resourcefulness have come down to us through the generations. And nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past and the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver, the Lone Ranger meets Calamity Jane. One silver, hurry, big fellow, and silver, away! Warm September sun bathed Princeton, Missouri in a pleasant and affectionate glow. Its light was reflected in the shining row of freshly washed bottles that lined the front porch of Frank Brown's general store. That was matched by the rich, tawny sheen of a young girl's hair. She was hardly ten years old, freckle-faced, barefooted, and dressed in faded blue overalls. But her eyes were sparkling, and her smile was one of triumph as she fairly skipped along the dusty street. Hi, Hi, Kip. What you got? Red-tailed squirrel. Ain't he a beauty? Looks more like a woodchuck to me. Guess I know a squirrel when I see one. Where'd you find him? Some hunter must have forgot to... I killed him myself. Oh, how? You can't shoot a rifle. Don't need a rifle. I pig squirrels all the time with my slingshot. I don't believe it. Don't. See if I care. 
killing a squirrel with a slingshot. Why, even Clash Barber, Red McGovern, or me can't. And we're boys. Listen, I can do anything you or any other boy can do. Who rolled that calf into the meeting house and whooped so loud almost all the women fainted? Well... And who went swimming in the creek last spring before snow was off the ground? Well, you did, Janie, but... Tell me, how'd you kill that squirrel? Did you have to sneak up on him or... No, I just spotted him sitting on a log down by the road. So I pulled out my slingshot and I said, Mr. Squirrel, you ain't nothing but a dad-burned, low-down, snaggletooth, hog-waller environment. Then I let him have it, see? Golly, Janie, where'd you learn to talk like that? My pa talks that way all the time, especially when I hide his chaw tobacco. Gee, but I still don't think that you're that good with a slingshot. Yeah? See them bottles sitting up there on Brown's porch? I can pick off any one of them. First shot. Don't try that. You might hit the big window. Listen, I hit what I'm aiming at. Wait, Janie, (laughs) don't. That fancy pants kid of old man Brown's. You know, Gilroy. He might see and then... Who cares about Gilroy? Watch this. (coughs) Gee. I can do it again. Uh-oh, here comes Gilroy. Let him come. What's the idea of throwing rocks and breaking bottles on my father's front porch? What do you care, Bob? They're all empty. Janie, I might have known it. Mother says you're the most disgusting girl in the whole town, and she's right. What does your mother see about her own little girl? There aren't any girls in our family. Your ma can fix that any time by dressing you in a pinafore and braiding your hair. <laughs> you, you... Somebody ought to slap your dirty face. Why don't you try? I... I will. You dad burn low-down, snaggletooth, hogwaller environment. I'm gonna beat the living tar out of you. Oh. <laughs> That's it, Janie. Sock him again. Hey, what's going on down there? It's old man Brown. Gilroy! Gilroy! Father! Father! I'll learn you not to... Here, here, here. Uh, take, take your knee out of Gilroy's face. Here, let him up. She, she hit me and called me names. Didn't touch a critter till he slapped me. Why, I... Oh, it's you. If there's any trouble around here, you're bound to be at the bottom of it. Gilroy was on the bottom most you, of the time. You... Go on home. You have a home. Get off the street. Hurry up. Here's your squirrel, Jeannie. I've been holding it for you. Thanks, Kip. Come on. And as for you, Gilroy, you're old enough to stay out of fights, especially with girls. Now go on back to the store and wash your face. She, she was breaking those bottles on the front porch. Yes, I saw that slingshot she was carrying. I guess I ought to be thankful she didn't break the front window. Frank, well, was a ruckus down there, wasn't it? Yeah, just kids fighting, that's all. Go wash your face, Gilroy. <laughs> I was sitting right here when that young'un started popping off those bottles with her slingshot. Pretty good shot. Yeah, she's Bob Canary's kid. Martha Jane Canary. Yeah, I know. She's a wild one, all right. Yes, sir, if you ask me, that Janie's a caution. You dapper and low-down, snaggletooth, hog-wallard What the... Clean through the window. By Juniper, that Janie's a caution. She's worse than that. She's a calamity. Unwittingly, the country storekeeper had christened a tradition. As the years passed and she left Princeton with her parents, a vital, boisterous, untamed girl became Calamity Jane. Soon this headstrong young woman who dressed in men's clothes and scorned the privilege of being a lady was known from the cow trails of Kansas to the gold mines of Dakota. She joined in the Texas Roundup. 
That's all for today, boys. Out the irons and let them critters bed down. Hey, what the... Hey, why don't you swing a loop on that longhorn for the farm and stampede the whole herd? A loop won't do no good, Slim. I'll bulldog the critters. Get up there. Look at her ride. There she goes out of the saddle and... Twist the critters' neck, Calamity. Twist it. Now oh, she did it. Did it slick on a whistle. Hi, Juniper, she's worth ten ordinary cowpokes. There's only one Calamity Jane. She drew cards with the rest of the men. I'm holding a pair, so I'll take three cards. Sure. Here they come. Just a minute, Tinhorn. I said three cards from the top of the deck. Not from the middle or the bottom. What do you mean? I... Now, listen. I don't pack this shooting iron for an ornament. Give me a straight deal or I'll drill your lion carcass. Why, sure, sure. Anything you say. That's telling them, Calam. <laughs> One evening, a few months later, the Lone Ranger and Tonto pulled their horses to a halt on the outskirts of Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, who's who's got home? Well, we'll walk the horses from here into town, Tonto. Ah. Uh, how you know Wild Bill Hickok's still in Kansas City? I don't. But he was here a few weeks ago, and it's up to us to find him. This message from Abilene's important. Uh, where we look? Well, the Central Cafe is the most likely place. We can reach the rear entrance by taking a side street. I don't think we'll be seen. Uh, Take it easy. Come on, so Get him up, Scout. <laughs> Calamity Jane had been in Kansas City for several days. Dressed as usual in buckskin trousers and leather shirt, she was surrounded by a boisterous crowd of cowboy friends in the Central Cafe. <laughs> Go on, Calam, tell us what happened. Well, like I was saying, it was down in Texas. This young puncher had never seen me before, and I guess he was a little drunk. First thing I knew, he was trying to kiss me. Kiss <laughs> you? Well, what'd you do? I laid a gun barrel alongside his head. That cooled him off. <laughs> ain't, you, ain't you ever been kissed, Calamity? Not lately. Uh, you just haven't met the right man, that's all. Well, I don't mean us cowpokes. You might change your mind if a gent like, uh, like, uh, well, like Wild Bill Hickok over there Hickok? was to put his... I've heard about him. Which one is he? Tall gent, stand at the end of the bar. See that long yellow hair and how slick he's dressed? Mm-hmm. So that's Wild Bill Hickok. Did somebody say Hickok was in here? Where is he? Right over there, stranger, near the back door. You a friend of his? He'll probably leave you by that back door, too. That's good enough for me. Who was that little pint-sized critter? Looks like a tin horn. Yeah, he is. Name's Jack McCall. I know him down... Maybe I'm wrong, boys, but... I'll lay eight to five, he's a killer. He had that look in his eye. And what's more, I'll bet he's gunning for that Hickok, gent. You think yes, he is? Now, if Mr. Hickok leaves here by the back door, McCall may be planning a little back-shooting job. Let's go outside and sashay around to the rear end of this place. Come on, boys. It's the back door of the cafe, Tonto. You go in and see if... Wait... There's a crowd of men coming this way. Ah. And look, there's a little man standing in shadows by door. 
Yes, I wonder if he... I'll see you later, gents. I'm going back to the hotel and get some sleep. Hello, that's Bill Hickok now. This way, Hickok. Take what's coming to you. What the... Look out, I'll get that vermin. They're coming from both sides. Come on. Hello, Ranger and Tonto crouched low and ran with drawn guns toward the rear of the Central Cafe, where Wild Bill Hickok was caught in a bewildering crossfire. Grasping the situation at a glance, the masked man decided that the crowd of cowboys, which included Calamity Jane, could be dealt with later. He removed the greatest danger first. Keep down, Bill. Stay down. At least he's out of the way. Hey, what is... Hey, look! Now who planned the mask? There's a redskin with him. Right out, loud hands. That's a woman, fellow. Watch your fire. Ah, I'll try to stop her. Hi. Oh, my God, he shot it. Oh, here goes the other one, too. Hey, Calamity! They broke Calamity! Come on, boys, Bill! Stop! Wait, hold your fire. I haven't been aiming to kill. If you don't stop shooting, we'll level our sights. Hey, what are you... Oh, it's you. I wondered who was siding with me and never dreamed. Hello, Bill. I came up just in time to see you walk into a gun trap. Yeah, from both sides. We weren't trying to gun you, Hickok. We figured to burn Jack McCall. He was waiting back at the door. McCall? So that's who... Then that's all who horned in. This man's a friend of mine. I'm grateful to you boys and him, too. Friend? He's an outlaw, ain't he? Otto, see if McCall's still over there by the door. Friend or not, he shot Calam. She's laying right back there on the ground. Who? Calamity Jane. I'm sure she isn't seriously hurt. I shot at her guns, that's all. Oh, uh... Tom Smith, the sheriff of Abilene, was killed a few days ago, Bill. They want you to take his job. Will you ride back with Tom and me? Smith? Dead? Why, sure, sure, I'll go. Good. McCall, tell her gone. Me not find him. Boy, that sneaking little sidewinder, I'm going to... Too late for that now, Bill. See how bad Calamity Jane's hurt. I don't know, i wait for you over here. The last jet was right, Bill. Clam ain't been hit by any bullets. Guess maybe she fainted or something. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And if all you men are friends of hers, well, she's in good hands. Don't worry, Bill. We'll take care of her. Calamity Jane. I know you can't hear me, Calamity, but I want to thank you for what you tried to do. I've got to go, boys. You heard the message I got. Yeah, the only thing I can't figure out about that mask, Jenny, is it... Hey, did you see that? He caught Kiss Calamity when he was kneeling down there. Yeah, I saw him. Knowing what Calam thinks about kissing, <laughs> it's a good thing she's unconscious. I'm not unconscious, you idiot. Calamity! You know what happened, Calamity? Sure, I know. I was knocked down when that outlaw shot my guns away. Then Bill Hickok came over here and kissed me. And, and you don't care? Boys, for, for the first time in my life, I, I wish my hair was frizzed out real pretty-like. And that instead of this buckskin, I, I was wearing calico. The curtain falls on the first act of our Lone Ranger story. Before the next exciting scenes, please permit us to pause for just a few moments. to continue our story. A year passed, and Calamity Jane continued to roam the boom towns of the West. 
Her fame became greater as time went by. Her friends were legion. She was Calamity Jane, queen of the frontier, and she loved it. Only one thing disturbed her. There was a king whose fame was even greater than her own. His name was Wild Bill Hickok. In Deadwood, South Dakota, they met for the second time. Bill! Bill Hickok! Well, up. If it isn't Calamity Jane. Gosh, I'm glad to see you. Glad to see you. The last time in Kansas City, there was so much lead flying that I... Then that outlaw friend of yours got well, he's you to... a friend of mine, all right. But he's not an outlaw. I've wondered about that lots of times. Who is he? Why, he's alone. Oh, just someone I'm mighty proud to know. Say, say, I'll buy a drink. Oh, no, you won't. This is my town, Bill. I'll buy. <laughs> all right, Calamity. Anything you say. Come on. Yep. Hello, Johnny, Slim, Bob, Tex. Head for the bar, boys. I'm going to buy. Hey, look who just walked in. It's Wild Bill Hickok. When did you get into town, Bill? How long are you going to stay? Oh, no, yeah? Just a minute. Don't rush me. Hey, maybe you gents didn't hear me. I said the drinks are on me. Sure, we heard you, Calam, but... Hey, Bill, tell us about that gunfight you had down in Abilene. Yeah. Oh, no. something Calamity Jane hated to admit, even to herself, but the truth was hard to deny. When the king was in town, people forgot about the queen. A few weeks later, everything changed suddenly. Wild Bill told the Lone Ranger about it. You see, Calamity Jane and I got married this morning. Nobody knows it but you. Married? Well, congratulations, Bill. I didn't know you were planning I on... wasn't. But now that it's done, I'm going to work awfully hard at being a husband. Good. I don't know Calamity very well, and she Neither probably... Neither do I. All I know is that I'm in love with her. Only one thing that sort of puzzles me. What's that? Well, she made me swear to keep our marriage a secret. I don't figure that telling you is... If it's a secret, Bill, it's safe with me. Calamity told me why she wants it that way. Is that so? Maybe other folks wouldn't understand, but I do. You see, Calamity's used to having everybody make a fuss over her. Of course, they do that to me, too. There can't be two firsts, can there, Bill? Something like that. Anyway, whatever she wants is good enough for me. And I'll help her any way I can. I'm glad to hear it. Oh, uh, say, by the way, Bill, I understand a gambler named Jack McCall has been seen around Deadwood lately. McCall? He tried to kill you in Kansas City. Remember? Oh, oh, that little tin horn. Uh-huh. Uh, he doesn't worry me. But I'll keep my eyes peeled. You uh, have a reputation for being very cautious. For always sitting with your back to the wall when you're in a room. Uh, don't forget it. I won't. And thanks for coming over. Todd and I are camped at the edge of town. If you ever need help, let us know. I will. Adios, Bill. <laughs> True to his word, Bill Hickok retired more and more to the background. Even when he received an urgent message to report to General Custer, Calamity Jane went with him. General Custer, 
I know where there's a scout that knows more about this country than I'll ever know. A scout that can outride, outshoot, and outguess 20 critters like me. Well, it sounds impossible, but uh, who is this paragon? Standing right beside me, General. Calamity Jane. Calamity? You? Well, if I was real modest and ladylike, General, I'd call Bill a liar. But if I want to be truthful, I've got to agree with him. Well, I, I hardly know what to say. Calamity's your scout, General. There ain't a better one from here to Texas. I, uh... Well, very well, I'll take your word for it, Bill. You mean I've got the job, General? Scouting for you and the 7th Cavalry? Report back here to the fort within 10 days. I... Yes, sir. You don't know how much this means to me, Bill. Imagine me, Calamity Jane, a real army scout. If it's what you want, that's all that's important. And... You don't care, do you, Bill, about not telling folks we're married? All I care about is seeing you happy. I want folks to like me the way they've always liked me. Because I'm Calamity Jane. I understand. You just leave it to me. Clam, just like she used to be. <laughs> I've never changed, boys. Say, Clam, is it right that you're going to be scout for General Custer? Sure, why not? You know where the general can find a better one? <laughs> no, by the eternal, I don't. But I'm not reporting for duty for over a week. Then there's plenty of time to... Oh, hello there, Bill. Hello. I say there's plenty of time, Clam, for you to knock the tops off a few bottles for us. Ain't it about time we all had a drink? Yeah. All right. Watch this. Why does Calamity keep on hanging around with a back number like Bill Hickok? <laughs> Wild Bill. Why, he's nothing but a beat-down gunfighter that ain't got sense enough to get himself killed. Yeah, it is kind of funny why Calamity keeps pulling him around. Uh, uh... Hi, Bill. Hello, boys. Say, I notice Calamity's pretty busy at the bar right now. I don't want to bother her. You get a chance... Tell her I'll see her later, will you? Sure, we'll tell her, if we get a chance. Of course, no one in Deadwood knew of a certain gambler's intense hatred for Bill Hickok. Only the Lone Ranger knew that. And only Tonto, whose watchful eye had never left Jack McCall, realized a murder was being planned. Nisi gambler fella write two notes, Kimasabi. One him sent to Calamity Jane, other to Bill Hickok. McCall's up to something, that's certain. We'll ride into town and see, Bill. Come on, Silver. Get off, scout. But I tell you, Bill, Tato saw Jack McCall writing two notes. It's a frame-up. Maybe, maybe it isn't. This note's from Calamity. She says she's going to Red Creek to take care of some minor sick kid. And she might not be back for quite a while. You don't believe that, do you? Well, she's gone. Maybe it's her idea. 
What do you mean? Maybe I am just an old-time gunfighter without enough sense to lay down and die. Everybody in town had planned a big banquet in Calamity's honor for tonight. She must have got awful tired of me or she wouldn't have left town and missed that banquet. That doesn't make sense and you know it. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure of anything anymore. Tuttle and I will find Calamity. Red Creek or wherever she is. You wait here. I'll be down at the cafe. It's kind of lonesome around here when Calamity's gone. Come on, Tuttle. There she is, Tuttle. Riding right ahead of us. Ah, wait. Calamity, pull up. Pull up. What the? Mask, turn out, boy. You're not going to... Grab the bridle, Tuttle. Ah, Oh, Scott, hold on. Hold, Silver, hold. Please, hold, boy. If you think you're going to... leather calamity. Hey, I thought I recognized you. You're the same... Yes, we met before. I'm a friend of Bill's. The important thing now is why you rode up here to Red Creek. Oh, I guess Bill must have been playing some kind of a trick on me. I got a note saying It was a trick, all right. Bill had nothing to do with it. Come on, we'll head back to Deadwood. You wait at the house. Tana and I will go to the cafe and get Bill. One Silver. Get up. Get up, Scout. But long before the Lone Ranger and Tonto reached the cafe where Bill Hickok was waiting, Jack McCall found the man he hated with his back to an open door. Hickok! What the? This is once you've got no out who part decide you. don't have to tell me. I've already heard about it. Bill's dead. The law caught Jack McCall. He'll hang for murder. That won't bring Bill back. Oh, why did Calamity, have you ever heard of a woman whose thoughtless selfishness helped to destroy the man she loved? You, you mean I... Oh, no, Bill didn't deliberately... Oh, of course not. But I'm afraid that by the time Bill walked into the cafe tonight, he didn't care. This is the night the boys are given some kind of a dinner for me. Will you send word that I... I... I think he would want you to go. Adios, Calamity. Quit jabbering for a while. Maybe I can make a speech. <clears throat> I guess y'all know why we're here. This blowout is in honor of Deadwood's leading citizen. I'm talking about a rip-snorting female we're all proud of. Calamity Jane! <laughs> now, Calam, if you just stand up, I can hand you something we all chipped in to buy. All right, boys. Here. Yeah. A pair of the finest silver-mounted shooting irons Mr. Cole ever made. And look at that inscription on there. The Queen of Deadwood, Calamity Jane. I'm mighty grateful for the present. I know you all meant it to be right, but it's wrong. The inscription's wrong. It's to Calamity Jane. Well, what's wrong with that? Ain't that you? No, boys. 
My name is Mrs. Bill Hickok. just heard is a copyrighted feature of the Lone Ranger Incorporated. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I present more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great evening and a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.